0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from AntiWar.com. This is AntiWar News for Friday, February 17th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of com today. A U.S. missile may have downed a small hobby balloon. So President Biden on Thursday acknowledged that the three unidentified objects he ordered the U.S. military to shoot down were likely harmless weather balloons. So these are the three unidentified objects that they shot down after the Chinese balloon. Uh, Biden came out and gave a little uh, address on this situation on Thursday. And he said, quote, the intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research, end quote. So following the panic caused by the Chinese balloon that floated over the United States, U.S. fighter jets shot down Unidentified objects on February 10th, 11th, and 12th. Each day they shot one thing down. And they used heat seeking Sidewinder missiles to shoot these things down. And they're worth over $400,000 a piece. Um, that's also what they used to shoot down the Chinese balloon. And in one incident, the thing that they shot down over Lake Huron, Michigan, which was the last thing that was shot down on February 12th, one of the missiles missed. So, I mean, it just shows how dangerous this whole thing is. Now, Biden said that the military was still working to collect the debris, uh, so they're not saying they know what it is, they're just saying it was likely some sort of harmless balloon. Now, there is a report from Aviation Week which said at least one of the objects may have been a hobby balloon reported missing by a club in Illinois that launches small balloons with tracking devices that are capable of traveling the globe at high altitudes. So the club, which is the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade, they said that their balloon was last reported off the coast of Alaska on February 10th. And tracking data projected that, would be, that it would be floating over Canada's Yukon territory on February 11th. And that was the same day a US F-22 shot down an object in the area over that Canadian territory. And since then, they haven't seen this tracker, hasn't transmitted its, its location since then. And the balloon that they launched is known as a Pico balloon, which is a small silver-coated party-style balloon that carries a transmitter. Party-style, the things that you see at birthday parties, that's about, uh, you know, kind of a bigger version of that, but not much bigger than, than what you probably are picturing in your head. And a Pentagon memo described the object that was shot down over Canada as a small metallic balloon with a tethered payload below it. So if you're watching on the video here, uh, I just tweeted out this picture that I found of one of these Pico balloons. This was the best one I could find because it, it it shows somebody standing next to it. So you could get the idea of the size. And I mean... It, this is unbelievable the fact that they used that they might have used a sidewinder missile to shoot one of these things down and these are launched by you know hobbyists um, that uh, in some cases they use ham radios to track them. Um, so again uh, and then more evidence that it could have been this is what could have been shot down is that Canadian authorities said that the object that was shot down was traveling at approximately 40,000 feet. And when the club's balloon was last reported, it was floating at about thirty-nine thousand feet, so close to forty thousand feet. And this club right now, they're not blaming the government for shooting down the balloon, uh, but they do think it's a real possibility. And again, their transmitter has been off, but uh, there has been other instances where these these transmitters could go out for a few days. But uh, you know, it's the seventeenth, and you know that this was published on Thursday. This report. And it quoted a guy named Ron Meadows, who is the founder of Scientific Balloon Solutions, and that is a company that makes these Pico balloons. He told Aviation Week that he tried to contact the government to tell them that they were likely shooting these types of balloons down. He said, quote, I tried contacting our military and the FBI and just got the runaround to try to enlighten them on what a lot of these things probably are. And they're going to look not too intelligent to be shooting them down and quote. And these Pico balloons can be purchased for as little as $12. Uh, some of them could go up to $180, but I mean, not much money that's. And, and if you look at, again, at the picture, it's a little tracking, tracking device, very small, just a few inches or so that's hanging from this balloon. It's pretty cool. I mean, it sounds cool that, that they, they can travel the globe. And then, uh, This other club, the Rocky Mountain Ham Radio uh, Group, they describe the Pico balloons as a three-foot Mylar foil party balloon filled partially with ultra-pure helium and carrying a 13-gram solar-powered APRS transmitter. So again, very small transmitter. The balloon is intended to travel for long distances and is intended to be recovered. These balloons, oh, is not intended to be recovered, so they don't recover them. These balloons have literally circumnavigated the globe even multiple times before finally descending. So apparently, you know, these guys are nervous now that their hobby is going to get kind of, they might get new regulations or something put in place because of all this. But I mean, man, if that's what they shut down, I mean, it's just unbelievable. So they used, you know, how many of the Sidewinder missiles for, uh, with these three unidentified objects, it's over a million, it's almost $2 million. And not to mention, you know, deploying the jets, what that costs and everything. It's just, I really, it would be unbelievable if, you know, we didn't know who we were dealing with here. Um, but again, you know, it's not confirmed that that's what it was, but there's some pretty strong circumstantial evidence there. And I've seen other people say that it's probably these types of balloons. And and Biden himself is saying, yeah, it's probably just some kind of weather balloon that was small and, and didn't, you know, didn't really do anything that the U S would have to worry about. Um, all right, the next one here, Blinken might meet China's foreign minister at a conference in Munich amid balloon tensions. So Blinken, uh, he's going to attend the Munich security conference, which is going to be held from Friday to Saturday, sorry, Friday to Sunday. And he canceled a planned trip to China after the Pentagon announced that that Chinese balloon was traveling over, The continental United States Blinken called the incident a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty, but it was later revealed that the balloon ended up in U.S. airspace by accident due to unexpected weather, which is what China was saying all along. Uh, That was confirmed by the Washington Post, and I believe the New York Times also had a story about that too since. And the U.S. still is claiming it was a spy device, while China insists it was a civilian balloon used for research purposes. Uh, so U.S. officials told Axios that if Blinken meets with Wang Yi, who is the Chinese foreign minister at this conference, he would likely use the opportunity to ease tensions over the balloon. Although I don't really have much faith in Blinken considering his reaction to the balloon thing is not, oh, let me you know talk to China. It's, oh, let me cancel my trip. Um, and China has criticized the U.S. for their reaction to the balloon, for shooting it down, for overreacting. Uh, and saying that it hurt the progress they made since Biden and she met in Bali, Indonesia. Uh, but after Blinken canceled his trip to China, U.S. officials they're insisting that they still want to maintain communications with Beijing, but they frame the dialogue as a way to manage competition rather than to really resolve issues. So that's how they view the relationship with China, as Biden made clear during his State of the Union address. You know, that was when he was talking about China. It was all about this competition. Uh, Okay, so the next one here is interesting. Uh, Blinken says that Ukraine trying to take Crimea is a red line for Putin. So Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on Wednesday that a Ukrainian attempt at retaking Crimea would be a red line for Putin and would would risk a major Russian response. Uh, Politico reported that Blinken made the comments during a Zoom call on Wednesday with a group of experts in a discussion about the war. And this political report cited four unnamed people familiar with the call. So to hear Blinken, th- to hear that Blinken said that, I mean, that's something. You know, of course, we're always warning about that. This is such a serious red line for Putin. Um, if the U.S. supported Ukrainian attacks on Crimea or a Ukrainian attempt to take the peninsula, you know, we're risking nuclear war there. And Blinken's comments might mark a potential shift in the Biden administration's thinking about Crimea. While it's clear, you know, the Pentagon and the administration in general doesn't actually think Ukraine has a chance of retaking Crimea. The New York Times reported last month that the administration still wanted to help them attack the peninsula and that they weren't concerned about escalating the war. So at least here, Blinken recognizes, you know, the risk. And Putin has shown he's displayed a willingness to really escalate the war over attacks on Crimea. A very important point that I make a lot is that he didn't start these large-scale attacks on Ukrainian energy infrastructure until after the truck bombing of the Kerch Bridge, which connects Crimea to the Russian mainland. That happened in October, and then they started pounding Ukrainian infrastructure. Again, they didn't do it before that. So the idea that it doesn't risk escalation like a full-scale assault is, is just nonsense. It's just not true. According to Politico sources, Blinken made the comments when asked if the administration was willing to help Ukraine achieve its goal of taking Crimea, which Russia has controlled since 2014. They said that Blinken conveyed that the U.S. is not actively encouraging Ukraine to retake the peninsula, but said that it's up to Ukraine whether to do so or not. So he's not ruling out helping them. Uh, he's saying if they want to do it, you know, they'll, I guess they'll still support them. And Ukrainian officials still maintain that they will drive Russia out of the peninsula. But again, the Pentagon doesn't think so. And neither does Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He said that it's unlikely Ukraine's going to be able to drive Russia out of all the territory that it controls. He said by the end of the year, but I think he kind of means in general. Uh, while Ukrainian officials say that they will liberate Crimea, most people living on the peninsula are happy that they are part of the Russian Federation. This is, again, another important point, because this is what you, the rhetoric you hear from Ukrainians is that, you know, they're going to liberate this peninsula, but it's full of people that don't want uh, they're liberating. Russia annexed Crimea following the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Kiev that ousted Yanukovych, sparked the civil war in the Donbass, and a referendum at the time showed 97% of voters were in favor of joining Russia. Now, that is a very high number, and the U.S. and Ukraine dispute the result. But polling since then has shown that overwhelmingly people, the people of Crimea are happy that they joined Russia. There's a lot of examples of this. And this article I linked to isn't some Russian propaganda. It's actually foreign affairs. Um, So again, very mainstream new uh, outlet that recognizes, you know, the reality in Crimea and how people that live there feel. So good to see at least Blinken recognizes, you know, it could risk something if, if Ukraine goes for it. Um, All right, the next one here, Ukraine launches joint production of artillery shells with a NATO country. So Ukraine's state arms producer announced on Wednesday that it was launching joint artillery shell production with an unnamed NATO country. And this is a step that reflects the alliance's deepening cooperation with Kiev. Uh, so this is Ukro Boronprom is the company. They said that they began producing 120 millimeter mortar rounds with a NATO member, but declined to identify which NATO member it was. The company's spokeswoman said that the joint production was just the first step in NATO Ukraine cooperation on arms production. She said, quote, the emergence of this shell is the first product of our joint cooperation with a country from the NATO alliance. It will not end with shells. We will soon show you other products produced with partner countries. This is the onward movement and integration into cooperative chains with the North Atlantic Alliance, end quote. The announcement came a few days after the Telegraph reported that British, that British defense industry executives recently visited Ukraine to discuss producing British weapons inside the country. But this spokeswoman, she said that the NATO country involved in the artillery shell production was in Central Europe she wouldn't say which one, but said it was a central European country. And that rules out the UK as a possibility. The Telegraph report said that arms makers in other countries were looking to produce weapons inside Ukraine, including companies in France and Germany. And of course, any factories producing NATO weapons would be a target potential target for a Russian military. So again, this is, um, uh, an example of Ukraine-NATO really expanding cooperation. And, and it comes as their NATO is really worried about this art- artillery shell shortage uh, that they're dealing with. Uh, the next one, oh, I just left up that Russia wants a UN Security Council meeting uh, in wake of the Seymour Hersh uh, Nord Stream report. Uh, the next one here, this is really important. Uh, US sanctions are killing Iranians with a blood disorder. So U.N. experts said this week that U.S. sanctions on Iran are causing more deaths of Iranians with uh, thalassemia, which is a congenital blood disorder that requires specialized medicine. I probably pronounced that wrong. I meant to double check on the pronunciation before I started recording, but it's a bl- bad uh, blood disease that you know people inherit and they require specialized medicine to treat. Uh, So in a statement to UN experts, one is Elena Duhan, who I quote a lot. She's the UN special rapporteur on uh, unilateral coercive measures, which sanctions are. They said, quote, the lack of access to medication has resulted in many more deaths since the reimposition of sanctions against against Iran by the US in 2018 overcompliance with sanctions has escalated affecting the import of life-saving iron regulating medicines for uranium thalassemia patients. This not only violates their right to health, but also results in increased complications and mortality rates, end quote. So they're saying more Iranians with this disease are dying because of U.S. sanctions. And this, I actually got this from The Cradle, which is a pretty good site on the Uh, on areas uh in this region. And but besides that, I didn't see it reported anywhere else. And I put in the statement that was put out by the UN on Tuesday saying US sanctions are killing people in Iran and didn't really get picked up by any out any Western media outlets that I saw. Uh, the US insists that sanctions on Iran technically have exemptions for humanitarian goods, but history shows international banks and companies generally avoid doing business with heavily sanctioned nations altogether due to fears of running afoul of the restrictions. Uh, So they said, quote, the humanitarian exemptions for medical goods in U.S. sanctions regulations are complex and unclear. In addition, recent U.S. practices impose high fines on pharmaceutical companies selling medicine to Iran, triggering fear in medical delivery and insurance business sectors, end quote. So this says that the sanctions have... Uh, or because of the sanctions, Iran have not been able to get a specific medicine made by a Swiss company for this blood disorder. And they also couldn't get the ingredients to make medicines for this blood disorder that are made in France. Um, and, you know, there's other examples of this. I know there's some other disease that people need specialized bandages for where they get cut cuts really easily or sores and they can't get them and more people are dying because of that. And, you know, this is just, another example in a long list of how U.S. sanctions hurt ordinary people, hurt ordinary civilians, and in many cases, you know, kill people. Uh, And this is an example of it. And again, just gets ignored by uh, the media. Um, All right. So the next one here, this is from Jason Ditz. And this is about that Iraq currency exchange, uh, how the Federal Reserve controls, you know, Iraqi access to dollars. So the U.S. endorsement fails to help Iraqi currency exchange rate. So dragged down by a crumbling currency, Iraqi officials had high hopes. The bottom was reached this month with the U.S. endorsing a series of reforms meant to scale back limitations on use of the country's dollar reserves. Friday the 3rd saw the dinar bounce off of record lows. It's the Iraqi currency, but predicted recoveries never materialized. And the currency is showing no signs of stabilizing. The exchange rate is settling back down to those recent lows. The unstable dinar's problems have ground Iraq's economy to a halt, with the U.S. Federal Reserve controlling Iraq's dollar reserves, even though Iraq has exported a lot of oil and trade for petrodollars. They've been unable to take advantage of those profitable exchanges with their own currency. The U.S. fears more dollar availability will facilitate smuggling in Iran and Syria and has subsequently scaled back the access that propped up the dinar. This has prevented Iraq from rebuilding from the ISIS war and planning for future growth. The level of control is is exactly why during the invasion and occupation, the US increased its grips on Iraq's bank. They're still struggling to find a balance and it's clear the market's faith in US endorsements is less prevalent than its pessimism over the Fed making things worse. Again, since the invasion, they've controlled iraq's bank and that's how they can still control the country and have influence uh, even though so many people want the u.s to leave um so all right the next one here uh the u.s launches another airstrike in somalia u.s africa command announced that it launched an airstrike in somalia against al Shabaab on wednesday the second known u.s airstrike in the country this month So in a press release, AFRICOM said their typical thing. uh, They claim that it killed five Al-Shabaab fighters and that no civilians were harmed because it was done in a remote location. Like people don't live, you know, in remote areas or anything. And of course, I always have to just say the Pentagon is notorious for lying and undercounting civilian casualties. So we can't take their word. And there's never any confirmation of their claims. It's never like because they say this is their initial assessment and there's never follow up reports. Very rarely. Sometimes people get there on the ground and they usually find a much different story that civilians were killed. We're just not seeing their account confirmed. Uh, so there's no reason really to believe them. And the strike was carried out uh, northwest of Mogadishu, 285 85 miles northeast of the capital, Mogadishu. So again, puts it in kind of southern central Somalia, where a lot of this fighting has been, has been going on between the US-backed government and al-Shabaab. U.S. airstrikes continue to increase. Again, this is the second in February. There was three in January. In 2021, there was 15 claimed by AFRICOM. And it's another thing to point out is that the CIA, I believe, also launches drone strikes in Somalia, and they don't have to make them public. So it could be more airstrikes than, than we know of. This is just what they're announcing. Um, And the airstrikes, so they went up since Biden deployed troops to Somalia last May. The airstrikes initially dropped when President Biden first came into office as the Trump administration launched a record number of bombings in the country. So there was 15 airstrikes in Somalia in 2022, 11 in 2021. But you go back to the Trump administration, there was 45 in 2020 and there was 59 in 2019 which was a record high. Trump bombed Somalia more than Bush and Obama combined. Now, Trump did order the, the the withdrawal of most of the troops that were in Somalia. At the time, it was 750. This was during the final months of his administration. But those troops were mostly redeployed uh, elsewhere in East Africa, I believe mostly in Djibouti and Kenya. And that made it easy for Biden to you know, send them back in and they were still launching airstrikes. The Trump administration, even after the withdrawal was complete, um, and Task and Purpose actually reported on this airstrike. Again, usually there's very little media coverage, and they talked to Christopher Miller, who served as the acting Defense Secretary Secretary in the final days of the Trump administration. And Miller said that he believes the Biden administration's decision to redeploy troops to the country was related to the Afghanistan withdrawal. He he, think, he said, quote, after its debacle in Afghanistan, I would strongly suspect the Biden administration decided that they needed to show strength regarding counterterrorism someplace else. End quote. So, uh, you know, who knows, really, if that's the case. Um, I think they they were did begin launching airstrikes again in Somalia before uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal was completed. Um, But, you know, this really is, you know, when you talk about the the terror war, uh, actually, they have been stepping up operations against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. But when it comes to airstrikes, it seems like Somalia is where they're launching the most right now. And it's just something that, you know, nobody is aware of. Uh, All right. So the last article here is from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. Bipartisan lawmakers seek to stop a billion dollar arms sale to Nigeria. So two representatives are demanding that White House rescind a $1 billion arms sale to Nigeria. This demand was issued after reports of abuses by the Nigerian military. So in April, the Joe Biden administration approved the sale of attack helicopters to Nigeria for $997 million, so almost $1 billion. And then near the end of 2022, Reuters released an investigation that revealed the country's military had performed 10,000 forced abortions. Uh, So that's why they are, this is uh, Representative Sarah Jacobs from California. She's a Democrat. And Chris Smith, he's a Republican from New Jersey. That's part of the reason why they want the US they're calling on the white house to reassess its military relationship with nigeria and nigeria is also is uh, known for killing civilians in airstrikes uh including in airstrikes that the US you know supports in some way there's been some major civilian casualties in in their airstrikes against you know supposed to be targeting these jihadists or they end up killing a bunch of civilians um so i it's good to see you know somebody in congress trying to Stop it. I don't know how far they're going to go, uh, if it's just two of them right now, but it's you know bipartisan, so maybe they'll get some more support on this. Um, and they said this in a letter to the Biden administration. Uh, but that is it for the news. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Doug Bandow. Congress has the chance to end endless war. That's over at the American Conservative one from William J Astore enough is enough my speech for the rage against the war machine rally um so he's going to be speaking there which is awesome wait is he uh... oh he's he's not going to be at the stage it's his, it was his dad's birthday he said but but anyway go check that out that's the speech that that he would deliver We have one from Ted Snyder. This is over at the Libertarian Institute. Who really started the Ukraine wars? One from Stephen M. Walt. That's over at Foreign Policy. The top five lessons from year one of Ukraine's war. Then the spotlight is from Kelly Vlahos over at Responsible Statecraft about the Seymour Hersh. Nord Street bombing. The Cy Hersh effect. Killing the messenger. Ignoring the messenger. Uh, A lot about the media reaction. So go check that out. Uh, But that's it for me for today. That's it for the week. I should be back on Monday. So I'm going to be at the rally on Sunday in D.C. If any of you are going to be there, you know, maybe we'll we'll meet. Um, But so it's Sunday. So I record Monday's show on Sunday night. I usually write, spend Sunday writing my articles. But uh, Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman, I believe they're going to be available to be writing while I'm at the rally. Um, And if I get home in time, I'm going to record a show. I should. DC is only like a two-hour drive for me. You just never know with DC traffic and stuff, even though it is a Sunday. Um, so there should be a show Monday. It might be a little short, but I could give you a little recap of the rally. Hopefully, I can attend the whole thing. I'll be there with my kid. He's he's only 15 months, so if he uh, gets cranky, I might have to get out of there. But um, but yeah, I'm excited. I mean, uh, it's gonna hopefully it's gonna be a big turnout. There's a lot of big names, and I mean, there's four former members of Congress: Dennis Kucinich. Ron Paul, Tulsi Gabbard, and, um, Cynthia McKinney. And so it should be, that should draw a big crowd, I think. And there's also a ton of other great speakers and uh, we're going to be represented by Scott Horton. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited. going to meet some people that, you know, I've talked to for so long online and never actually met in person. That's going to be exciting, but yeah, hopefully, you know, I'll meet some people there that listen to this and read antiwar.com and you know, it'll be, uh, give me a little extra motivation. Uh, that's, what's always good about going to events like that where other people actually care. Cause this can get, you can get a little cynical, uh, doing writing about all this horrible stuff all the time. Uh, but that's it for me for the week. Again, I'll talk to you after the weekend. Thanks for listening.